a book uh, that was turned into a movie that many of you, I think, have probably seen. How many of you have either read or seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? How many of you have never, never seen it, never read it, don't know anything about it? Zero. Absolutely nothing. Wow. There are two of you. And you're both college students. That's really sad. No, there's nothing to cheer about. That's awful. It's, it's terrible. Actually, I blame your parents. It's not your fault. It's just bad parenting. All right. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a long story that doesn't matter why I sort of decided to revisit this right now. But uh, uh, suffice it to say, there was a movie night. There was some discussion. And there was some feelings of like, hey, let's, let's talk about this. Now, when I grew up and I... Had read the books, and there was different versions of the movie when I was a kid. Um, I didn't know there was any sort of religious imagery or anything. I just thought I was just a little bit freaked out by some of the people in the movie, and like I was terrified of the witch and stuff like that. But I didn't understand like that there was meaning behind it. And uh, we're going to talk about that meaning. But uh, the movie that most of you have already seen. Uh, came out in 2005, and we actually rented one, a, a movie theater in Vernon Hills. 350 people from the church came out on a Saturday morning. It was, oh man, it was so fun. Um, and the movie, at the time, it made, in the first, like, like you know, the first year it had, it had taken in $300 million. It's now made $745 million, which is pretty amazing that it was originally a children's story written by a Christian author, and it's sort of now just this, you know, worldwide sensation. Um, so it was written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, was, a, was a very famous author. He was a convert to Christianity very late in his life. So he was, he was a skeptic growing up, um, not interested. He was, a, he was a professor, not interested in anything related to faith. And then uh, very late in his life, he, he began to, to sort of come... Um, deal more extensively with the claims of who Jesus was, and he became at first what he called the most reluctant convert in all of England because he was not happy about the fact that he had become a, a, a Christian. But he he found that there was no other way to do it because the the sort of the the mental math that would be required to ignore being a Christian was too great for him, and he had to realize that he believed that Jesus was who he says he was. So, um, but they asked him, so he, he, wrote, he wrote a ton of stuff and, and uh, highly recommend books. If you want to read more of his stuff, you should read, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, some are better than others. Uh, I think the first one is, is probably the best. Uh, Magician's Nephew is also excellent. We'll talk about that one a little bit more. Um, but just a, a brilliant writer, very creative person. And he was asked about, the, like, what, what, do you, what do you think about if these were to become a movie? And he said that anthropomorphic animals, when taken out of narrative into actual visibility, always turn into buffoonery or nightmare. Uh, and then he said a cartoon version would be another matter. But Lewis then added, if only Disney, which is amazing because Disney was, was making cartoons at the time, if only Disney did not combine so much vulgarity with his genius. He said that a, a human pantomime Aslan would be, to me, blasphemy. So more than 50 years later, the Walt Disney Company produced the most successful version of this book, which is just sort of funny. Um, so we can't be sure, you know, how 
uh, he would have felt about this, that particular movie. His stepson, Doug Gresham, was involved in it, but I found it to be incredibly uh, true to the original material, which doesn't often happen with, uh, with movies, but I, I just found it to, to, to be so, so closely not removing any of the religious uh, you know, stuff at all. In fact, there are very specific moments that they could have just removed because they so clearly had these religious themes and they didn't. So um, the side note about this, I want to talk about you know, this, what was sort of unique about this. We have this Christian author writing a story that is clearly Christian, but it's getting distributed by people who couldn't care less about the theme. The movie was made, though, because it was good, not because it was Christian. Now, certainly, little side note that none of you cares about, but I'm going to say anyway. The Passion of the Christ came out when you were children, and it made a bajillion dollars. And Hollywood had to be like, wait, what now? You can make a movie that is all about Jesus, and Christians go see those movies? So what sort of happened lately is that there's people that just go, oh, we'll make, you know, some crappy movie and every Christian will go see it. Sometimes it's been true, but sometimes it hasn't. Like the reason why this movie and this story is so popular is because it's good. The story is good. The storytelling is good. Uh, the writing is good. When they transferred it to the screen, it was good. So it's, it's not that you just, what C.S. Lewis said is we do not need more people writing Christian books we need more Christians writing good books, which is, I think, what he did. Um, C.S. Lewis never had children of his own. Just later in life, he married a, a woman who had older children. But he wrote them as stories uh, for, as a gift for his goddaughter, Lucy Barfield. And they were written, first and foremost, to provide an entertaining story that children would love. Um, so it's impressive, I think, that... that even though he didn't have kids of his own, he wrote stories that appealed to children so well. Um, and he obviously writes stories to, uh, to, to not just tell stories and entertain, although they are entertaining, but also to uh, teach us lessons, which is what Jesus did. If you read the New Testament, Jesus wrote, he, or he spoke, and he didn't write, but he spoke in parables that were recorded in the Gospels, which were stories. He would say, uh, you know, consider this. He would sort of look around and go, Consider this, or imagine this man, you know, went on a journey, or this uh, a shepherd who, who loses one of his sheep and runs off. So he, would, he was always telling stories to communicate, and that's what C.S. Lewis does so brilliantly in this and other stories and in his writing. He just had, uses allegories very well. So we're going to talk about just six themes that come out in this particular book and uh, that, that I don't want you to miss. Because some of you, and I hope that maybe you'll go back and either read the book or watch the movie again and look for these themes as they come out because uh, they're just so brilliantly done and they really, they, in a way that, uh, that, that it helps you understand the truth of Scripture in a better way than, than you know, sort of just if you were, someone were to tell you, like my sermon today is not going to communicate the, the, the truth of this in the way that the story can, in the same way that if you are, you know, explaining a joke to someone, they don't laugh, right? You have to tell a joke, and that's what's funny. If you try to explain why it's funny, it's over. You've, you've lost, right? Uh, but I hope that what we're doing is we'll sort of, oh, maybe I'm, I didn't realize that that was what was going on in the story. So the six themes. The first theme is the seductiveness of sin. 
sin seduces particularly Edmund in this story. And Edmund is the character. So there's four children. Edmund is the second one to enter Narnia. Uh, so just a quick reminder of the story. The four children are shipped to the countryside during World War II so that they'll be safe. Lucy wanders into this magical world uh, through the wardrobe, and she meets a fawn named Mr. Tumnus, who we find out is, is, tries to, to uh, put her to sleep to take her to the White Witch, but then he, he feels bad about it, and he, he sets her free. So she goes back and tells her siblings who don't believe her, but Edmund then accidentally uh, also wanders in. He meets the white witch, gives him a, a dessert called Turkish Delight, which turns out, I've, I've had it, it's terrible. But some people love it, and he loves it, and it's, it's also magical uh, Turkish Delight, or sweeties, and he's just, he is enchanted, and he wants more, and he wants more, and he wants more. And the white witch promises that he'll have more if he'll bring back his siblings. He, she wants... Uh, him to bring back his siblings because there was this ancient prophecy that says that when four humans visit her world and sit on the thrones, her days are numbered. So she wants them all to come so that she can kill them. As in, Edmund doesn't know that, nor would he probably care uh, even if he did know it. All he cares at that point is he wants to get more of the Turkish delight. It says that the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And it turns out that this enchanted Turkish delight, and it's, it's enchanted and anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would, even if they were allowed, go on eating of it till they killed themselves. So he's, uh, Edmund's captivated by this, and it shines a light on each of our own battle with sin, I believe. I don't think this is an accident that this is what uh, C.S. Lewis chose to do in, in this, this story. The seductiveness of sin is constantly at work. And not only does sin seduce, but it also uh, lies just like the queen. The queen lies and lies to Edmund. Says that, uh, tells him that she'll make him a prince. Tells him he's the most handsome and clever boy ever. That there's rooms full of Turkish delight for him to eat, but she doesn't deliver on her lies. When he comes back and he's like, "I did it. I'm back. I brought my siblings. Where, where's my Turkish delight?" She's nasty to him. She's mean to him, um, and she doesn't deliver on her promises. And that is the same thing with sin. Sin promises, it, it seduces, it says, I will, I will make you feel great. And sin does make us feel good for a short period of time, but it never satisfies. And it, all, we always, it always leaves us wanting more, and we want a little bit more, and maybe this time, and maybe a little bit more, and now I'll be happy, and now I'll be happy. And we're never, ever truly happy when we are walking away from what we know we're supposed to do, or what God wants us to do. But that's why we sin. It's because we believe that when we sin, we'll be happy. We don't sin out of duty. We, do, we sin because we think it will make us happy, but it doesn't deliver on its promises. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, he puts it this way. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. We are seduced by sin. We're all enchanted, and we all think, oh, a little bit more, a little bit more, and that's what will make me happy. We can read about Edmund in this story and read, see the movie. We see ourselves right there. But if we know ahead of time not to believe those lies, we can fight that seduction. We can say, Sin, you're a liar. You're not going to make me happy. I want to follow Christ instead because Jesus 
always delivers on his promises. God always delivers on his promises. He promises to bring us a lasting joy, a relationship with him which will never, uh, a well that will replenish us that will never run dry. God never lies to us. Sin always does. So that's number one, seductiveness of sin. Number two, contrasted with the seductiveness of sin is the attractiveness of Jesus. So the character of Aslan, spoiler alert, he is the Christ figure. He is a ferocious talking lion in the story. And Lewis himself indicates as much, if not explicitly in his writings, but there was a letter that he wrote uh, to a girl who wanted to know what Aslan's other name was. And he says this. He says, as to Aslan's other name, well, I want you to guess. Has there never been anyone in this world who, one, arrived at the same time as Father Christmas, which happens in the story, two, said he was the son of the great emperor, three, gave himself up for someone else's fault to be jeered at and killed by wicked people, four, came to life again, five, is sometimes spoken of as a lamb, which happens in the third book, don't you really know his name in this world? It's Jesus. And in the character of Aslan, Lewis communicates the mystery and the wonder of Jesus, the, the joy for his followers and the dread for those who have offended him. So uh, I'm just going to read this passage from the first time that his name is mentioned. Mr. Beaver says his name in passing, saying that Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to be put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in his inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Why is that? Because he was living his life in opposition to what Aslan wanted him to do. So when he hears Aslan, he feels a mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have, this is, just, this is perfect, because this is, this is the greatest feeling in the world. You ready? Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. That's the best feeling. I love that feeling. It's the greatest. And it's sad when you're an adult and you don't get a summer anymore, but I still remember finishing finals, right? When at the end of, 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 the, of the year, the school year, and you know that you have summer ahead of you and you're just like, yeah, this is so great. Yes, yes. I know. I've seen you do it. Um, so that just that, that mysterious wonder, C.S. Lewis captures that so much. Um, there's this unique personality of Jesus as revealed in the Gospels that attracts some, it haunts others. And Lewis, I think, captures this in the character of Aslan, going further to explain in his famous words, you might have heard this said before, that Aslan is not a safe lion. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's not like a tame lion. Pastor Mike this morning talked about how God is wild. He's not tame. Jesus is not tame. He's not safe. And this goes in the 
the face of this popular idea about Jesus as being, you know, meek and mild, and you sort of imagine Jesus, when you imagine Jesus, you imagine him frowning. You imagine him, like, looking off into the distance, sadly, you know. Jesus was excited. He was fiery. He was happy. Um, He was not safe and boring. So, the attractiveness of Jesus is captured in the writing. Number three, we see the logic of truth. So, uh, in Lewis's life, Christianity was something that he didn't come to as a leap of faith or as something that was just like, I guess I better believe or, or anything like that. It was absolutely the logical, uh, the most logical choice that he could make was to believe that Christianity was true. And you have this... Uh, in the story, so, so uh, Lucy comes back, and, and, uh, and Lucy and Edmund have both been back now, and Edmund is, is now still trying to, to lie about the fact that, that Narnia is real, and Lucy is like, no, it's real, and Susan and Peter are really confused about this, about, you know, what do we do, and they go to the professor who, who, who owns the home and runs the home and explains this to them, and uh, and the professor asks him, asks them, oh, so is Lucy the one that ordinarily lies? And they're like, well, no. So he's like, well, well why, why wouldn't you believe her? And they're very confused because they're like, but you're an adult. And shouldn't you know that Narnia can't be possibly real? And he says, well, there's only three options uh, for what is true about this. He says, uh, either your sister is telling lies or she is mad, meaning she's crazy, or she's telling the truth. You know she doesn't tell lies. And it's obvious that she's not crazy. For the moment then, and unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. So this is the exact argument that C.S. Lewis uses to explain why Jesus must be the Son of God. So you have a man, Jesus, who you've heard this, some of you before, you've got three options. He either is the Lord, he's, he is the one who says, who he says, you know, he's the person who he says he is. Or he's lying, that's option two, or he's a lunatic, he's crazy. And uh, because someone who comes along and does all these wonderful things and says these incredible things, but then also says he's God, well, that person is either lying about that, or he's a lunatic and you should be locked up, or, you know, he's telling the truth. Those are the only really three options that you have. And so Lewis buries that, you know, sort of triad, Lord, liar, or lunatic, in his story related to Lucy and the existence of Narnia, and it's brilliant and amazing. But uh, he is someone who uh, understands that we don't turn our brains off when we come to faith. That's number three. Number four is the theme of destiny and God's sovereign plan. So deeply intertwined in the story is that of God's, God's plan, but then humans' role in it. So it's this beautiful marriage of man's free will and God's sovereign will coming together just as the Bible draws it up. You have Lucy entering Narnia of her own free will, wandering into the wardrobe, as do her siblings, and there they discover that an ancient prophecy has predicted that this is what would happen. So for people that are like trying to understand, we talked about this last semester, how does it work where you've God's in control but we're in control uh, C.S. Lewis puts those together in this, you know, beautiful way. Uh, I think we all have a part to play in God's story, but it's, it's not, we don't have to, there's not this pressure on us to go find it out as though God's will for our lives is some secret that we have to convince God to reveal to us. 
Um, God's will for our lives is to love him and to love others. It's Micah 6.8 to uh, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. And so as we walk through the world, we will discover, you know, at, at particular moments, just like Lucy stumbled onto Narnia, we will stumble onto things in our lives where we say, I was made for this. And it's just wonderful that we don't have to freak out about it. We don't have to like, oh, no, I'm going to miss out on God's plan. No, we don't. We don't miss out on God's plan. If we are walking in obedience, we will, we will walk into what he has for us. And I think that's captured well here. Number five is this, sacrifice. Just uh, last two. So this is a big one, of course, in this story. Um, Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so Aslan does the same. Edmund is captured by the white witch. He's then freed by Aslan's armies, but the white witch makes her way into Aslan's camp, demands Edmund's life for the treason that he has committed in turning against his siblings. And we discover that the deep magic of Narnia declares that every traitor belongs to the white witch as her lawful prey. And so Aslan goes, confers with the White Witch alone, afterward comes back to declare that the White Witch has renounced her rights on Edmund's blood. But then, to everyone's dismay, they discover that the payment for Edmund's blood is Aslan's blood. And so the girls follow Aslan that night into the witch's camp, and they watch as Aslan is bound, shaved, humiliated, and killed. And of course, this is... Uh, an incredible picture of Jesus' willing sacrifice on our behalf. And this, to me, is the part of the story. I certainly missed this when I was a kid. Uh, and when you read it as an adult, it sort of sneaks up on you and just paints this incredible picture of God's great sacrifice uh, on our behalf. It's, it just shows that, you know, like, we're all Edmund. We look at Edmund and we're like, oh, what a little punk. What a little snake. That guy is, he's the worst, right? Well, that's you, and that's me. We are all the worst. At our, you know, we can all be selfish and care only about ourselves and, and just want what we want and not care who it hurts in the process. Um, we're enemies of God by our sinfish, sinf, sin, not sinfish, that would be sinful and selfish hearts. Uh, we deserve to die for our actions. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself bore our sins on the cross. He endured a humiliating death on our behalf, a sacrifice for all time. And this too was to satisfy the fulfilling of an ancient prophecy that one would come who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Hundreds of years before Jesus lived, this was the book of Isaiah, said that one, a suffering servant, would be crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, Isaiah 53. And by his wounds, we are healed. So we have this amazing picture from C.S. Lewis demonstrating the extent to which we have offended our king and the lengths he went to to pay the price that we deserve to pay. And just like Jesus, Aslan rises from the dead, victorious over it. So, sacrifice is a big one. Um, and then the, the, the final one uh, that I've found there is redemption. And not just the redemption of a soul, but the redemption of the whole world. 
we see that first when Aslan arrives on the scene. I just sneezed. I was hoping it would go away. So when Aslan arrives on the scene, finally winter is beginning to end. And um, Christmas finally arrives. They're, they're talking about how it's, there's, it's all, all winter and no Christmas. So finally, Christmas finally arrives. Creation itself is transformed as spring finally arrives in Narnia. And then after Aslan rises from the dead, he visits the white witch's castle where she's turned all these people to stone. And by his breath, he breathes new life into the statues. They're reborn. And uh, we also see at the very end of the story the redemption or the second chance offered for Edmund, who was the source of so much difficulty for most of the story. And in the final battle, Edmund is the hero and is instrumental in defeating the witch. Uh, Peter is describing this. He says, it was all Edmund's doing, Aslan. We'd have been beaten if it hadn't been for him. The witch was turning our troops into stone right and left, but nothing would stop him. He fought his way through three ogres to where she was just turning one of your leopards into a statue. And when he reached her, he had the sense to bring his sword smashing down on her wand. When you start that sentence, you don't know where it's going. It was all Edmund's doing. You're thinking, oh, what did he he do again? You know, he did so much bad. But instead, he becomes the hero of the battle. We see the offer of a second chance, forgiveness for the past wrongs that he's committed, a new start for Edmund. And in fact, at the end of the book, he's given the name King Edmund the Just. This is actually reminiscent of how the Gospel of John ends. Again, I don't want to spoil it for those of you that, that you know, haven't read the book of John, but I'm going to spoil it. Um, Simon Peter, after following Jesus for three years, he turns on Jesus. He denies him three times in a row. But after he, Jesus is resurrected, Jesus comes to Peter, asks him three times if he loves him. One second chance opportunity for every time Peter betrayed him. So Edmund is nothing but trouble for the entire story until he finally gets another chance and he proves himself worthy. So as we head to small groups, I hope that maybe this will give you a a clearer picture of God's love for us. His desire for us to stay away from sin to embrace Jesus as king, to use our minds and logic as we follow him, to understand his plan and our role in it, to see that that the way of sacrifice is the way to life, and then that we will see that God is a God of second chances. And as we begin a new year, maybe 2019 was terrible. Maybe uh, you, you are hoping for something new, and this is an opportunity to say, I want to I do things differently in 2020. And we can be confident that that is who God is. That God is a God of second chances. He's a God of redemption. He loves us. He sacrificed on our behalf and he redeemed us. Let's pray.